Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, our topic is solving the problems of consciousness. My guest is Professor Philip Goff, a professor of philosophy at Durham University in the United Kingdom. He is the author of the new book, Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness, as well as Consciousness and fundamental reality. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Philip. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Great to chat to you. You've uh, really done uh, an extensive investigation of the many philosophical nuances associated with consciousness and, and the problems that it has been posing for philosophers now for several centuries, if, if not even millennia. Uh, you refer to Galileo as, as an important figure in, uh, both as the father of science, but also many people don't realize Galileo engaged in philosophical explorations as well. Yeah, that's right. So Galileo is known as, as the father of modern science, but in many ways he was also one of the greatest philosophers that ever lived. And it was Galileo really at the, at the start of the scientific revolution that sh who shaped the philosophical foundations that still lie behind philosophy to this day. You know, people forget that science has a philosophy behind it, you know, and that, that, that philosophical worldview was really shaped by Galileo right back at the start in the, in the 16th century. Uh, you point out, for example, that uh, it's not even clear that his famous experiment relating to gravity, dropping two objects from the Tower of Pizza, really occurred, but he had actually uh, solved the, that problem philosophically. Absolutely, yeah. So I think he might be one of the few philosophers to have a philosophical argument that nobody has ever refuted. So, yeah, people think of Galileo as a great experimentalist, a great uh, observer, astronomical observer, and, and of course he was. But uh, a, a key part of Aristotelian physics, which was the worldview before the scientific revolution dominated by Aristotle, and uh, the scientific revolution largely overturned many, many of the ideas of Aristotle, one being that the Earth was in the center of the universe. Of course, Galileo and Copernicus overturned that with observation. But there was another part of Aristotle's worldview that Galileo overturned, not through experiments, not through observation, just by thinking about it. And this was the, um, the common sense idea, really, that heavy objects fall faster than lighter objects. You know, it seems kind of common sense and people following Aristotle had believed that for uh, thousands of years. What, Ga what Galileo thought, just by thinking hard, he proved that this actually involved a contradiction and not only wasn't true, but couldn't possibly be true. The idea when you really think it through, 
Um, we could go into the details or not if you like, but it, it, it ends up being contradictory. And so, yes, as you say, we have this picturesque uh, idea that he, he dropped from the Leaning Tower of Pisa uh, heavy objects, uh, a heavier object and a lighter object and proved, well, we have the idea of a cannonball and a feather uh, and proved that they fall at the same time. Actually, if he had done that, that wouldn't have worked because of air resistance. Air resistance would have made the, the feather go slower. We finally did the actual experiment on one of the moon landings. Uh, we dropped a lead ball and uh, a feather. And because you don't have air resistance there, they fell at the same time. So Galileo, his historians think he probably actually didn't do that experiment, but he didn't need to. He proved that Aristotle was wrong just by thinking about it. And I think this shows, you know, what's really underrated is the role in science for deep thought to help us make progress. Your work as a philosopher is to apply that kind of rigorous logic to the uh, difficult problem of consciousness, probably the most difficult problem in all of science. Yeah, that's that's the idea. So, um, you know, there is this deep problem, you know, despite great progress on our scientific understanding of the brain, we still don't have even the beginnings of an explanation of how complicated electrochemical signaling is somehow able to produce this in a subjective world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us knows in our own case. So it's, it's broadly agreed now that this, that this is a profound scientific challenge. But a, a lot of people think, oh, we, you know, it's a deep problem, but we just need to do a bit more neuroscience. We just need to plug away at our standard methods for investigating the brain and we'll crack it. I think, though, and this is part of what you do as a philosopher, I think when you really think through the nature of the problem of the consciousness and, and why we have it in the first place, which again relates to Galileo, I think you find it, it's not just another scientific problem. It really is a problem we have to address in a quite different way. So, so that's, that's what I try to press as a philosopher. This is really quite a unique problem. And it's not just, you know, sometimes people have this oversimplistic idea of science as though it's just doing the experiment and getting the data and that's it. And, you know, of course, experimental work is an important part of science. But often there's a role for, often some of our greatest leaps in science have involved reimagining the universe around us you know these great reimaginings that we get from newton and from einstein and from darwin wasn't just a matter of doing experiments it was a matter of thinking can we rethink how we've been seeing the world um, and will that help us move forward with any of these problems so my hunch is as well as doing the experimental work the neuroscience which is crucial we're really if we want to make progress on this problem we're really going to have to rethink our understanding of the mind and the brain and the relationship between them. Most scientists today and even most philosophers of mind seem to be uh, wedded to certain basic axioms. And uh, one of those axioms is that the universe itself is fundamentally material, physical. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's still the dominant view, although, um, you know, things have changed a lot, I think. I think even in the, the 15 years or so I've been teaching philosophy, 
Um, you know, it used to be that if you challenge that materialist orthodoxy, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century, you wouldn't get a job. You couldn't get published. I know some great scientists who struggled to get a job because they wanted to work on consciousness. Consciousness used to be a taboo topic that wasn't seen as um, a suitable subject matter for serious science. Uh, you know, perhaps the height of this was um, behaviorism in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, this was a movement in psychology which said that uh, the the only legitimate focus for a, psych, a science of the mind is behavior. And that's because it's behavior that you can measure and observe and quantify and, you know, put in the lab as opposed to this mysterious, invisible world of feelings and experiences. Um, so really, for a lot of the 20th century, people approached the problem of consciousness by just effectively pretending consciousness didn't exist, uh, which does get around the problem. But of course, that's not really sustainable because of the inconvenient fact that consciousness does exist. Nothing is more evident than the reality of our feelings and experiences. Uh, and, you know, accepting that, I think, as people are starting to see now, does make science more difficult. It, it, it's, it, we have to perhaps slightly change our approach but the alternative is just pretending it doesn't exist when it obviously does. But yes, yeah, so if things are changing, there was a, a survey, actually it's probably 10 years old now, that this uh, Phil Papers is, a, is an online philosophy resource, and they did, a, they did a survey 10 years ago of what philosophers thought about a wide range of topics. And I think with philosophy of mind, it was 56%, I say in my book, I've forgotten that, 56% materialist. So a dominant view, but, you know, there's still, there's a huge range now of, of um, alternatives to the materialist orthodoxy that are taken very seriously as very much respected minority positions. So my, the position I defend, which we might get onto, panpsychism, 15 years ago when I finished my PhD and first started applying for academic jobs, I was told by well-meaning professors, maybe maybe keep that quiet, the panpsychism stuff. You, you might struggle to get a job. But now it's, you know, it's become a very well-respected, still minority position. You know, I have graduate students from all over the world coming to study with me. So it's, we're really seeing things changing. And I think, so I think it's quite exciting. How would you define panpsychism? Yeah, so... I guess in our standard way of thinking about things, consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms. Uh, and so consciousness exists only in a tiny part of the universe and only in very recent history, cosmically speaking at least. Uh, according to panpsychism, in contrast, consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. So it doesn't literally mean everything is conscious, uh, despite the word actually means that. The word pan means everything, psyche means mind. So literally it means everything has mind. But most contemporary panpsychists, the, 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 the basic commitment is that the, the fundamental constituents of the material universe, perhaps fundamental particles like electrons and quarks, have unimaginably simple forms of experience uh, and that the experience of the human or the animal brain is somehow derived 
from the experience of the brain's most basic parts. So that's the view, and it you know sounds kind of wacky at first, but more and more philosophers and um, and even some neuroscientists, some very prominent neuroscientists, are starting to think this is might be our best hope for uh, understanding integrating consciousness into our scientific worldview, which has proved such a mystery for so long now. Well, it would seem as if, conventionally speaking, the, the main alternative to materialism or physicalism would have been dualism, the idea that uh, there is a mental world and a physical world. Um, but you uh, have very good reasons for uh, identifying problems with dualism uh, that, that seem insoluble. As you say, when, when I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, um, we were taught that they were the only two options, right? Either um, you're a materialist and you roughly think that consciousness can be explained in terms of the chemistry of the brain, or you're a dualist and you think consciousness is outside of the physical workings of the body and brain, is, is non-physical, immaterial. And I came to think that both of these views had such deep problems. And yeah, I actually wrote my end of degree dissertation saying the problem of consciousness is irresolvable. And I went off and did something else and tried to forget about it. Um, and it was only discovering this, this middle way that I sort of thought um, this might be something I want to approach again. But yeah, as you say, so much dualism. Um, I mean, perhaps the problems are, are of a more straightforwardly scientific form. So, so most dualists, although they think the mind and body are separate, they think they stand in a, in a close causal relationship. You know, so if, if the mind decides to lift the arm up, that'll make changes in the brain and the arm will go up. Or, or in the other direction, if you know, light hits the retina of the eye, makes changes in the brain, you'll have visual experiences. Um, so there's this close cause relationship. So I think you have to think about if that, what would, what would things be like if that were true? If there were an immaterial mind impacting on the brain every second of waking life, I, I kind of think that would really show up in our neuroscience. You know, there'd be all sorts of things happening in the brain that had no physical cause. It would be like a poltergeist was playing with the brain. You know, there'd be, uh, lots of little miracles. Um, and that's not what we seem to find in, in neuroscience. So I think the more we learn about the brain and we don't seem to find that the action of a non-physical mind, that seems to count against the dualist position. Although, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't take this to be a knockdown argument. I do consider, you know, a variety of possible ways of responding to this. And I'm very much open to dualism. You know, I would open to keeping it on the table. Um, but I mean, just a more straightforward worry is, I mean, I suppose I don't like divisions in nature, you know, dualism introduces a division in nature. We've got the physical stuff on the one hand and the non-physical stuff on the other. Uh, scientists and philosophers ideally like to have as simple and unified as picture as possible. We like to reflect Occam's razor, the, uh, the theoretical principle that you should have the simplest theory of reality that's possible. And so dualism, you know, ideally it would be nice to have a simpler, more unified picture, picture of reality, if possible. But, uh, you know, I think we should keep dualism on the table. But I think 
there are other perhaps simpler options. In your book, Galileo's Error, you, you point out that the, the real obstacle to, for dualists is how, if there's an immaterial mind, how can it possibly interact with the material brain? Yeah, so that's always been the, the classic problem. If we think these two substances are so different that physical stuff is in space and time and has mass and charge and this immaterial mind has no shape or size or location or mass is literally nowhere. Uh, how do these two, how does something that's nowhere interact with something that's somewhere? Um, this is famously put, uh, was it in the 17th century? Um, by, um, princess Elizabeth of Bohemia, who was a student of Descartes, Descartes, René Descartes, the great French philosopher, who's probably the most famous proponent of dualism historically. Um, uh, and, but his, his, his student, uh, Princess Elizabeth said to him, I can't make sense of this. How can these two very different things causally interact? And it's fascinating that the letters, the correspondence they had, um, he died rather young Descartes and some people blame it on Princess Elizabeth making him get up early in the morning and for, um, for morning tutorials at five or six in the morning when Descartes was not used to early starts. But anyway, um, I don't know, but, but I, so that's always put as the classic problem, but I'm inclined to think, and I think that it's less of a problem than people might've thought. And that's because when you get down to the fundamental level, like fundamental physics, for example, we don't have explanation of any fundamental causal interactions, you know, so scientists try to capture mathematical laws that describe the fundamental workings of the universe. Newton came up with his law of gravity, right? That described in a very mathematically precise way, the gravitational attraction between objects dependent on the distance between them and their mass. Uh, but he didn't give an explanation of why that law obtains, right? Why the law of gravity obtains. This was famously put to him. People say, why does this happen? And Newton said, oh, can I remember the Latin now? Newton said, hypothesis non fingo, I think it is. I don't frame hypotheses. But, and you know, Einstein later, much later, gave a deeper explanation of gravity in terms of the curvature of space-time, that uh, matter curves space-time, and then and, and it's a reciprocal relationship because then, then matter then is, is its path is altered by the curvature of space time. Matter tries to follow the shortest path through space time and, and that will change depending on how space time is curved. And that's uh, how gravity works in Einstein's theory. But even then Einstein doesn't give an explanation of why, why does mass curve space time in the way he described? Why does, matter try to follow the shortest path through space-time. You know, when you get to the bottom, you just have to say, as, as Wittgenstein famously said, explanation ends somewhere. Once you get to the fundamental laws of nature, you just have to say, well, that's just the way it is. So if, you know, if the materialist is allowed to stop at just basic laws of physics, it's not obvious to me why the, why the dualist can't do the same. They can just try and say there are these basic, what, 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 well, so probably the most famous contemporary dualist is David Chalmers, and he calls himself a naturalistic dualist because he wants to think of 
Although he thinks the mind is non-physical, he thinks it can be brought into the domain of science. We can discover natural laws that govern it, what he calls psychophysical laws. And he just says these psychophysical laws that govern the relationship between matter and consciousness, they're just basic. They're as basic as the law of gravity. And it seems to me if, if it's okay for the materialist to have basic laws that can't be explained in any other way, why can't the dualist do the same? You might think it's kind of double standards to think the dualist has to explain their laws of nature, but the materialist doesn't. So, so I'm not convinced that that's so much a problem. It's more, for me, it's more the issue of wouldn't it show up in our neuroscience if there was a mind kind of playing with the brain all the time? But it's a, it's a live issue, I think. Well, I think one of the uh, most intriguing things for me about the uh, your logic, actually, is you look at materialists like Daniel Dennett, uh, who sometimes seems to argue that we're really not conscious at all, and and you push that point. You say if 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 you're going to be a materialist, you really have to believe that we aren't conscious, which which seems like probably the biggest absurdity in all of philosophy. It is extraordinary that, that some people are led to this. Uh, a good friend of mine, Daniel Dennett, who I've had many conversations with, and Keith Frankish, who's a friend of mine, who's one of the most warmest, empathetic people I know. And yet he, just, he doesn't believe in consciousness. He thinks sort of no, in some sense, nobody's ever felt pain or experienced color. Um, but, but, but as, as, you, as you say, I think actually this is, in a way, I think it's, it's just crazy, but in, in another way, I think it is the most consistent materialist position. Um, and so in a way, I kind of have more respect for it in a sense. Um, and one way to see that is, and this is the way I try to press the problem, physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary, whereas consciousness is an essentially qualitative phenomenon, just in the sense that it involves qualities. If you think about the redness of a red experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of mint, you can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative language of neuroscience or physical science more generally. And so as long as you're description of the brain is framed in the purely quantitative vocabulary of neuroscience, you're just always going to leave out these qualities and leave out really consciousness itself. So yeah, I mean, when I first studied philosophy, I, I thought I wanted to be a materialist because I thought that was, you know, the scientifically serious option. But I, I eventually came to see this, that really you can't be a consistent materialist, in my view, and, and, and really accept the reality of consciousness. So for a short time, I thought I, I had this view. Consciousness doesn't exist. I've had all the views. But I just found one day, I just found myself, I just can't believe that. I know I know I have experience. I know I feel pain. Nothing is, you know, that I agree with Descartes that that's actually more certain than the reality of the world around us, you know. I'm not sure that I'm, maybe I'm in the matrix and the table in front of me is, is, a, is an illusion, you know. Uh, but I know I'm having an experience of the table. That's, you know, the evil computers in the matrix can't be making me think I'm having an experience of a table when I'm not. They can make me think there's a table there when there's not, but they can't make me think 
um, I'm having an experience when I'm not. So yeah, so 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 I think the materialist position, um, you know, when you really think it through, it, it it just really doesn't make any sense. At least if you if you're going to accept that consciousness is a really existent thing. You've come up with a logical refutation of materialism based on the idea uh, of a philosophical zombie. Uh, for example, maybe a, a sophisticated android that uh, resembles a human in every regard, uh, except that it's not conscious. Yeah, okay, you, you, you're pointing to one of the most complicated bits of the book. <laughs> um, but it's one of the most exciting. Yeah, 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 excellent. So I should say this, this is not, not, I can't really claim, claim credit for this argument. This, I mean, this is actually the argument that's associated with David Chalmers, who I mentioned early, earlier, who's um, perhaps the most prominent proponent of dualism. Um, and, and he's quite associated with this argument that starts with philosophical zombies. So these creatures that, um, as you say, they're not, so it's important to distinguish them from Hollywood zombies. They're not these creatures that wander around eating the brains of people. And a philosophical zombie looks just like a normal human being and they walk and talk and behave in all ways just like a normal human being. Um, and the reason they do that is because the physical workings of their body and brain are just like the physical workings of a normal human being. So, you know, in terms of their physical makeup, they're atom for atom duplicates of a human being. But the difference is they lack consciousness. There's nothing that it's like from the inside to be a zombie. So you stick a knife in, they scream and run away, but they don't actually feel pain. Or, you know, they cross the road, they uh, look carefully and wait for the traffic to stop, but they don't actually have any visual or auditory experience. They're a complicated mechanism set up to behave like a, an ordinary human being. Um, so nobody thinks these things are real, right? But the thought is they look to be logically possible. There's no contradiction in the idea of such a thing. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not like a square circle. You know, a square circle is just logically incoherent. We can, the, the very idea makes no sense. But as zombies are, you know, they don't exist, but there's, there's no contradiction in the idea. And that seems to show that they could have existed, right? If the universe had been very different, if the laws of nature had been different, there could have been zombies. Um, now, you might still think, okay, who cares? Who cares what's possible? I want to know what's real. But, and this is actually the least controversial part of the argument. My students are often surprised at this, but 99.999% of philosophers agree with this because it's, it's maybe a bit technical, but it's a straightforward logical point that the mere possibility of zombies, the mere, not the reality, the mere possibility is in, is, is in logically inconsistent with the truth of materialism. Um, so do you want me to explain why? <laughs> Sorry, this, it's, uh, I, I think your point is, is is simply that you can't have be both uh, a zombie and a conscious person that uh, if they're identical in every way they can't both be conscious and not conscious at the same time. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in the book, I bring in some logical principles relating to identity. But the intuitive way of making the point is that, you know, the materialist thinks my consciousness is just produced by my brain and my brain and the brain processes are completely are enough to make my consciousness. Now, if that's true, you couldn't possibly have something that's just like me, but doesn't have my consciousness because on uh, according to materialist view, brain processes are enough for consciousness. So yes, yeah, so, so the, the, that's why the, the, if, if, if zombies are even logically possible, that shows that consciousness must be something extra, must be something more than just the physical processes in the brain. So um, yeah, that's, that, that's one of the, one of, one of the arguments, although it's a, it's a slightly technical one. And, you know, in a way, in a way, it's just a, a logically rigorous way of drawing out what I said earlier, which is more straightforward, which is just that consciousness involves these qualities, whereas physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary. Uh, and, you know, that's why physical science has gone so well, because it's worked with this purely quantitative vocabulary. Uh, and people think, Oh, it's gone so well, so it's going to explain consciousness. But as I argue in the book, that's really to misunderstand the history of science. And Galileo is completely clear about this. He said, you know, I want science to be completely mathematical, completely quantitative. But to do that, we have to take consciousness out of the domain of science because you can't, Galileo understood you can't capture the, the qualities of consciousness in a purely quantitative mathematical language. So he said, you know, take consciousness out. That's in the soul then we can describe everything else in mathematics. And that's the start of mathematical physics. And that's gone incredibly well. But people have forgotten it was only intended as a partial description of reality. Galileo gave science a very narrow, focused task of constructing these mathematical models. Uh, and that's gone really well because it was so focused. But, you know, because it's so focused, it's not really suited to deal with the qualitative reality of consciousness. Let me ask you this about a hardcore materialist such as uh, Patricia Churchland and her husband or Daniel Dennett. Do, do they actually believe that we are all philosophical zombies, really? Uh, it's difficult to say. I mean, Dennett's very slippery, if I may say. He's, he's a really nice guy and a wonderful philosopher, but you know, sometimes he really does. He, he, there is a quote from one of his papers where he actually says we are all zombies. Sometimes he, he sounds like he is straightforwardly denying the reality of consciousness. Sometimes he thinks he says, well, no, it's just that philosophers get consciousness wrong. And I'm that it's that kind of consciousness I'm denying the the confused idea that philosophers have. And I think Paul and Patricia Churchill are more on that side, actually, they're. I don't think they would ever say that, con I mean, they think that some aspect, at least these days, I think they would say, it's not that consciousness doesn't exist, but we need to revise our idea of what consciousness is. Uh, we need to just like, for example, you might think um, we've revised our idea of time. You know, we used to think that time is absolute and the same for all observers. But Einstein tells us, actually, no, time goes 
slower the faster you travel and if you're in a strong gravitational field time runs slower so maybe we have to change our idea of time so these guys think we maybe have to change our idea of what consciousness is um but i think i think in a sense they are all committed to denying the existence of consciousness because really their view is that what science does is account for the data of observation and experiment that's what we that's what we try and do with science we try and account for what we can find out through observation experiment and that's a general view of science right if you start from that position then you're never going to postulate consciousness because and this is another way of seeing why it's not a straightforward scientific problem because consciousness is unobservable you can't look inside someone's head and see their feelings and experiences you know we know about consciousness not from observation and experiment but from our immediate awareness of our own feelings so so daniel dennett um he thinks he is completely explicit about this that the data for a theory of consciousness is behavior things you can observe in the brain uh reports what people say about their consciousness uh, he calls this heterophenomenology so uh if that's the only data then you're never going to postulate consciousness if that was all you were going off you know if you were an alien coming from out of space and you're just looking at people's behavior and their brains yeah you wouldn't know if they have feelings or not you'd have no no basis to postulate consciousness so this is the, this is why it's such a different unusual scientific problem because the reality of consciousness is not known through experiment it's known from the inside it's known through our immediate connection with our own feelings and these people all deny that as a as a datum of science and in that sense at the, when push comes to shove i think really they are committed to denying the existence of consciousness uh which is kind of crazy but um there you go well, well, earlier when we were talking about panpsychism and the def definition of panpsychism, I think what you suggested is that it, it implies that even the most fundamental particles of physics have at least a measure of consciousness, of some primitive form of consciousness. And um, But as I read your book, I thought you were making a stronger claim than that, that actually the very essence of the material world is consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's very astute. Now, you, you've, you've read it very carefully. <laughs> Not everyone I've done interviews with has read the book so carefully. But thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, so, so the starting point of the panpsychist is that physical science doesn't really tell us what matter is. And that seems like a bizarre claim at first. You know, you, if you read a physics textbook, you seem to learn all these incredible things about the nature of space and time and matter. Uh, but actually what philosophers of science have realized, and this is kind of nothing to do with consciousness in a way, is that physical science, for all its richness, is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, about what it does so, you know, physics tells us, for example, that matter has mass and charge. Um, and these, are, these properties are completely defined in terms of behavior. Things like attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. This is all about behavior. 
physics tells us absolutely nothing about what philosophers like to call the intrinsic nature of matter. You know, what matter is in and of itself, independently of its behavior. Um, so it turns out there's actually this huge hole in our scientific story of the world. Physics tells us about what stuff does, but doesn't tell us what it is. There's this huge hole. Now, the proposal of the panpsychist is to put consciousness in that hole. So consciousness is the intrinsic nature of matter. So the idea is, you know, in a way, there's just matter. There's nothing supernatural. There's just particles or fields. But matter can be described from two perspectives. Physical science describes it, as it were, from the outside in terms of its behavior. But matter from the inside, that is to say matter in terms of its intrinsic nature, is constituted of forms of consciousness. So this is you know, a, be a beautifully simple, elegant way of bringing together what we know about ourselves from the inside and what science is telling us about the body and the brain from the outside, bringing these together in a single unified worldview. You know, unlike the, you know, the materialist on the one hand denies the reality of consciousness, I think ultimately, the dualist says oh, consciousness exists, but it's outside of the scientific story. It's in a different world. The panpsychist says we keep the scientific story, we keep the story of consciousness as we are immediately aware of it, and they're just two sides of the same coin, you know, they're two sides of the same reality. And so I think I mean, it's a beautifully simple, elegant picture, and that's what, you know, really draws me to it. I wonder, is that any different than the philosophical idealism of Bishop Barclay? That's, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so it depends how you define idealism. Um, if, if, you think, if you just think of idealism as, as the view that at the fundamental level there's mentality, then yes, this would, this would be a form of idealism. Um, but the more standard way of understanding idealism, and for example, Bishop Barclay, the great 18th century idealist, Irish bishop uh, that you refer to, uh, that kind of idealism holds that in some sense, the phys either the physical world is an illusion, or if it's not an illusion, it's, 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 it's not fundamental. So, so Bishop Barclay would say, this table isn't really, this table in front of me that my laptop is on, it's not really out there in the, in the external world outside of minds. It's rather constructed of ideas in minds, either in our own minds or the mind of God. So physical objects either are illusions or they're, they're constructions out of ideas. Whereas the panpsychist, in a way, is much closer to the materialist, right? The panpsychist says, no, there really is a physical world out there, as science describes it. You know, there really is a table out there. Uh, it's just that that physical world is made up of conscious things. So, so, so Barclay would say that, you know, the table, there isn't really a table out there. It's just made up of my ideas or God's ideas. The panpsychist says there really is a table out there. But it, it's made up of particles, but those particles are conscious, right? So, so, so I like it because it's it's um, it's much closer 
you have the best of both worlds. You know, you have the scientific story as scientists tell us about it, completely unchanged. But you say, you know, that's not the whole story. There's the scientific, you know, there's a, 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 a nature to the stuff science is talking about, and that's a consciousness involving nature. Um, but it leaves the scientific story untouched. You point out that uh, panpsychism uh, seems to be the simplest solution to the various problems associated with consciousness, but it doesn't eliminate all of them. There are some problems that remain. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, no one yet has a complete theory of consciousness. And, you know, it's early days in the science of consciousness. I think we're, we're still really not think we're still at the level where we're not thinking about the problem in the right way to begin with. Um, but yeah, even panpsychism. So, I mean, probably the most discussed is the so-called combination problem, which is, you know, roughly the idea that, um, you know, so as I said, on the panpsychist view, your consciousness is somehow results from the combination of trillions and trillions of consciousness as, at the micro level. So there's the, the particles that make up your brain have incredibly simple forms of experience, and then they combine in an incredibly complicated way to form your experience. Uh, now, the combination problem is spelled out in different ways, but the, roughly the starting point is how on earth is that possible? <laughs> how, how do, you know, we have some idea of how parts of a car engine can make a car engine or bricks can make a wall, but how can lots of little minds make a big mind? You know, that seems at least hard to make sense of um, and possibly even unintelligible. Some people think it just doesn't make sense. So I think this is a serious problem. Um, no one has an entirely satisfying answer to it. You know, so some people think, oh, well, that means panpsychism is a load of nonsense. But, you know, to my mind, that's like saying to Darwin, you know, you don't yet have a fully worked out uh, view of how the eye evolves. So your theory is a load of rubbish. But, you know, uh, I think it's it's early days and it, it, it you know, it will take you know, panpsychism is not a complete theory, but a framework for making progress. And it will take decades and centuries to decades or centuries to fill in the details. You know, it took a century from Darwin before we got to DNA. And this is part of why I wrote this, this, this book aimed at a general audience, because although this idea is causing lots of excitement in academic philosophy, you know, everything's so specialized these days. And, um, you know, you can it can be causing great excitement in one area of academia and no one outside knows about it. So I really wanted to get it out to a broader audience. But anyway, I'm, you might think I'm dodging the problem. To come back to the problem, I think there already are some really exciting proposals for dealing with this, uh, you know, some of which I talk about in the book. And one of the most exciting things is is that we're finding philosophers and scientists coming together to uh, to, to, to try and resolve this issue Um so the, the philosopher Hedda Hassel-Murk recently spent uh, a year in the lab of Giulio Tononi, who's one of the uh, proponents of the integrated information theory of consciousness, one of our leading neuroscientific theories of consciousness. And, um, and she um, spells out, interprets this theory within this panpsychist framework. And uh, another philosopher, Luke Roloffs, who's thinking about split brain patients, this... Um, 
these these people who've had the the, the, the center of their brain, the corpus callosum severed, which separates the, the two hemispheres of their brain, which leads to a it's a it's a radical treatment for epilepsy, and it leads to um, a bizarre fragmentation of consciousness. It it seems like the patients have two minds in one head. So Luke Roloff is thinking, well, could this help us with this idea of mental combination? We're trying to make sense of how multiple minds come together to make one mind. Well, the split brain cases are kind of the inverse of that. You know, they're one mind splitting into many, into, into two at least in the first instance. So if we can sort of understand what's going on there and reverse engineer it, maybe we can make progress. So, um, yeah, so I think this is a deep problem, but there's already exciting ideas. And I think it just seems to me that the problems facing the panpsychists look to be more tractable than the, than the problems facing the, uh, the, these other views. Um, you know, I think Hedda Hassel-Merck's view, for example, I, I, I have problems with it for various technical reasons, but it, it is a worked out solution. It is a possible solution. Uh, and I don't think any materialist theory has ever come up with a even a even a even a possible solution really even a possible way of bridging the gap between the quantitative properties of neuroscience and the qualitative properties of consciousness um so we at least have some working models but i think it's very exciting in the final chapter of galileo's error you do look at at a number of uh, contemporary social problems and how a, a panpsychist view might impact on those and i i thought really the most fascinating one if I understood you correctly, had to do with the, the internet itself, the fact that now over a billion people are communicating regularly, that the internet is almost an extension of our nervous system, that perhaps we're in the process of forming a larger uh, consciousness. Yeah, so, well, I, I noticed you had, um, you, you had an episode talking about Pierre Teilhard de Jardin, who, who's a hero of mine, who's a great thinker, great panpsychist thinker. And um, so I mentioned this in the context of, um, uh, well, actually, I, I mentioned, so, so Taya Dejardin, as I understand it, had this idea, you know, some people think he predicted the internet, that he had this idea that there have been these great leaps in the history of mankind, history of life, you know, from life to consciousness, to sentience, to self-consciousness, rationality. Um, and he had an, the idea that the next great leap would be, would involve humanity becoming informationally connected up, and this would lead to a new form of life and consciousness. Um, and actually, it's, uh, it's just interesting that the integrated information theory of consciousness, which is one of our leading neuroscientific, it's not a philosophical theory as such, or it has philosophical elements, a neuroscientific theory of consciousness, which is experimentally supported in lots of ways. It can explain why certain regions of the brain and not others are associated with consciousness, why certain periods of sleep and not others are associated with consciousness. Um, but basically the theory says that you find consciousness at the level of a system at which you have most integrated information. And this notion of integrated information is a notion that Giulio Tononi, the, the inventor of this theory, gives a mathematically precise notion of. It's, it's not just philosophy. Uh, so the theory predicts that if 
the internet and society involving the internet ever became such that it so complex that it had more integrated information than uh, the human brain that it would become a kind of conscious mind and we'd be sort of absorbed into that. Um, I mean, it, we're a long way away from that, I should say, you know, <laughs> a long, long way away that, you know, the, you know, there are, you know, 86 billion neurons in the brain and each one of them is connected to 10,000 others leading, leaving, yielding uh, trillions of connections. So, so that's a long way away, but, um, but it is interesting that, uh, that, that, that connection there, um, yeah. You, you also suggest that a, a panpsychic uh, mentality might be instrumental in helping us address uh, problems of uh, ecology, uh, global warming, uh, taking care of the planet. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you know, we are facing this environmental crisis and... Um, you know, I, I, I sort of think, it, you know, for example, if you, in our standard scientific worldview, if you think of a, a tree as a mechanism, which I guess is our standard scientific worldview, then your conception of its value is kind of indirect. You're going to think of it in terms of, you know, its value is what it can do for us, either in terms of looking pretty or, you know, more importantly, sustaining our existence. But if you think as many panpsychists do, that a tree is a conscious organism, albeit of a, of a very alien kind, then a tree has moral significance in its own right. You know, chopping down a tree is a, is, a, is a focus of immediate moral significance. So I do think this transforms, has the potential to transform our, our relationship with nature. You know, if we think of those, you know, I think many of us are horrified by these images of mass burnings of forests that we're seeing in various parts of the world, Brazil, for example. Uh, but it, you know, if we would think of them as, as, you know, conscious, the burning of conscious organisms, then I think, you know, it adds an extra moral dimension. So, you know, I do speculate, this is all part, you know, but this is my speculative final chapter, but I think it's interesting to think about at what, a child being raised to think of plants and trees as conscious organisms with their own interests and their own value, you know, I think it leads to a, a quite different relationship and, and hopefully a, a more positive one. I mean, I, I also add, you know, I, I think it's a, fundamentally we should be thinking about which view is true, you know, <laughs> which not the view we'd like to be true, but the view that's most likely to be true. But and I do think there's a very strong case of panpsychism as, as the best explanation we currently have as to how consciousness fits in to our scientific worldview. But it's also interesting to think about the implications for human existence. And I do think it leads to a picture of reality that's maybe slightly better for our mental or spiritual well-being. You know, materialism is kind of bleak. You just got the mechanistic view of nature and the cold immensity of empty space whereas in the panpsychist worldview we are conscious creatures in a conscious universe you know this is a worldview we can maybe feel a little bit more at home a little bit more comfortable in our own skin so yeah you do cite the empirical research of uh, people like uh, monica gagliano who's uh, uh, doing uh, experiments associate uh, basically um, 
pointing to the idea that uh, plants actually do have a kind of consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. Some really, really fascinating work. Um, so in Monica Gagliano, what she showed is that we can, we can subject pea plants to conditioned learning. I mean, I was just fasc- researching my book. I was fascinated to discover this myself. Um, so, so she's refl- comparing it to the um, drawing inspiration from the famous experiments the psychologist Pavlov did on on dogs. You know, he um, uh, conditioned them to associate. It rang a bell every time there was dinner, uh, so, and, and eventually, even if there was no dinner, if Pavlov rang the bell the dogs would start to salivate so that you could see that they'd associated dinner with a bell. So actually, Monica Gagliano did exactly the same, not exactly the same experiment, the same idea with pea plants. So pea plants feed off blue light and she uh, had a kind of Y-shaped tunnel that they could grow along and and obviously that the pea plants grow towards where the blue light is. What she did is she had the sound of a of a computer hum of a computer fan uh, accompanying wherever the blue light was, and eventually she found that the plant grew towards where the compute where the, the fan sound was, regardless of whether there was blue light. So it was as though the um, it seems that in some sense the the plant had come to learn that learn to associate dinner time with the sound of this computer fan. Absolutely incredible. And also, I mean, other work, you know, how much trees are connected under the ground, right? We, that, you know, we, many of us are not aware of. There's actually, um, you know, reciprocal sharing of, of uh, nourishment and even information across species. You know, human beings often find it difficult, sadly, to cooperate across ethnic lines, but plants cooperate against uh, trees rather cooperate across species so we have the the evergreen trees in in the winter giving sustenance to the deciduous trees that have lost their leaves and this is reciprocated during the summer for example if a if a fir tree is under shade and is not getting enough nutrition um this happens via uh, what's called mycorrhiza structures that via fungus there's a sort of prid quo quo co-relationship uh with the fungus and, and the fungus then connects the, uh, the trees so there's you know a real network of of hundreds of trees also they also favor their young genetically absolutely fascinating you know there's some kind of preferential to their own genetic kin so i think you know we again imagine a child growing up seeing walking through a forest and seeing it in a way that beneath the beneath our feet is a you know a buzzing community of of interaction and reciprocation and you know so i think the more we learn about these these facts um that were once thought kind of hippie nonsense the more the more we find actually that there really isn't much reason not to um attribute sentience to to trees and plants Philip Goff, this has been a fabulous discussion. I think the work you're doing in philosophy is uh, very uh, advanced, and I'm just delighted to be able to share it with our viewers. I know we haven't talked about my favorite subject of parapsychology uh, at at all, but uh, what you pointed out is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is that... uh, 
there's a sense in which philosophers and parapsychologists who are much more on the margin of society are in a sense moving in the same direction. Thanks, Jeffy. Yeah, it's been it's been really fascinating talking, and thanks for uh, you know reading the book so carefully and drawing out some of some of the really you know the key points within it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would certainly agree. Things are changing. I mean, I think I I think we've gone from people thinking consciousness pretending it doesn't exist. Now most people say no, it does exist. It's a serious scientific problem, but I don't think people have quite realised that this isn't just another scientific problem, that there is a deep clash with our standard scientific approach. But I think, I think people are coming to see that. And it's, you know, the reality of consciousness is, is so evident and it's, it's clash with our standard scientific picture is, 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 is pretty straightforward, especially once you bring in the history and you look at how Galileo set the whole thing up. So I, I really do see things changing in a quite radical way in the not too distant future. So, and it's already starting to happen really. And so, yeah, it's quite exciting. Well, thank you for being with me. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Thanks. Great to chat.